What a wonderful, exciting summer is in store for kids and teenagers at CIL. The title of my message today is From Manna to Fruit. The last maybe 20 years in America, there's been a lot of talk about our worldwide reputation. That's like a big concern to a lot of people. Now, I've done a little bit of traveling overseas, and when someone picks me up, like a taxi cab driver, and takes me from an airport to the hotel, like I'm not necessarily worried about America's reputation. I don't, it, it seems to be more bothersome to some than others. I mean, I like America. America's been good to me. Um, so that, that's not a huge concern, but that's kind of part of our national dialogue right now. And it made me think of, of this whole concept of collective identity. So we all care about collective reputation. Like, what's the reputation of America? What's the reputation of Henderson? But what's the reputation of CIL? And this is this kind of mindset is something we'll see uh, in the scripture of, of was, was a great motivation of how people related to God. But let, let's go back and talk a little, a little bit more about our country. In the, in the late 1970s, America was at a kind of a low place of morale. These are things that I've read about because I was actually in the nursery in the late 70s. My, my memory doesn't start till about 81 or so. But from reading that era of history, we, we, we can remember, and some of you can recall, uh, after Vietnam ended, there was a, just a, a great grief about how that ended, the uh, way we related to OPEC and the high prices of oil. Uh, inflation was out of control. Then there was the Iran hostage crisis where Americans were in hostage for, for many, many weeks. And so there was this sense of low morale and, and things seemed to somewhat improve, improve in the early 80s. Then something that we, we don't think about enough was the tragic bombing of the Marine barracks in Beirut. And that, that was such a, a sad and, and unfortunately uh, not remembered as much as it should be. A few weeks after that, the American army attacked, attacked or, or uh, did a military operation against a really small place called Grenada. Now, not many of us probably, not many Americans probably knew where Grenada was, and maybe you don't now. You can see on the screen the map. It's just a very, very small island uh, north of Venezuela. There are, there were at the time, about 100,000 people who live on this little island. Sumner County has 170,000 people. So our county is 70% bigger than that entire nation. So the, the Marines, they, they were brave, and they overturned this communist-leaning country through, through the attack. And there were probably lots of reasons why that occurred. And that's, as historians look back at that, we forget what the mindset was at the time, what the threats were at the time. But now, in retrospect, what this operation seemed to be was a morale boost. You know, America had, had been in a time of kind of national disgrace, some would say. 
after Watergate and after the things I already mentioned. And there was this kind of national bravado that, yes, our military is strong. Our values are clear. We are still a world power. Look at Grenada. It was this idea of removing a national disgrace. Well, this is a type of, there was a disgrace upon the Jewish people when they came out of the wilderness. They were 400 years in Egypt, just to give you some, some memory of what happened. 400 years in Egypt, delivered by God into the wilderness. And what was supposed to just take a few weeks to pass through because of sin took 40 years. So 40 years, the Israelites are in the wilderness. And that sin specifically was worshiping an idol. And when Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments, uh, they took all the gold and they formed a golden calf and they worshiped something tangible, something that they could see, touch, something uh, that was not just uh, a presence or a concept, but something physical. We, we need something physical, right? We have our own very sophisticated idol worship, but I'm not going to get on to you about that today. Uh, we, we, we've gone down that road a lot. So Moses himself, and this is not on the, the screen, it's not in your notes, but in Exodus chapter 32, Moses appealed to this idea of national reputation. And he said, God, don't destroy us because what would Egypt think? Right? What, what would Egypt think? If you delivered us, we crossed the Red Sea, and now, you know, after all these years in the we're in the desert and we're going to die in the desert. And so he had, had, had appealed to them and, and, and appealed to God and said, listen, for the sake of your reputation, God, don't destroy us. So God was gracious and God sent mercy. And one of the ways God sent mercy was through something called manna. Think about this. Multi, a multitude of people are in this desert. There are no cities, no places of safety. The land has not been cultivated and, and maybe couldn't even be cultivated. So no grain, no bread, no fruit, uh, you know, no real ability to sustain livestock. And so this was a place where the wilderness, where starvation would happen. And so God sent food every day and something called manna. And it was miraculous. Every day, the people, or at least six of the seven days, they would walk out and bread would literally be on the ground it was a sign of God's mercy. It was a response to, to sinful people saying, God, we, we, we need your forgiveness. We need your mercy. And so now we come to the verse that Chip read earlier. And, and I just want to tell you that this, this verse is stirring me really good, this passage today, okay? So I, I hope that you receive what God's speaking to me. Verse 9, then the Lord said to Joshua, today... I have rolled away the disgrace of Egypt from you. Therefore, this place is still called Gilgal today, which the word Gilgal means rolled away. So this idea, this is a place where God rolled away the disgrace. He took away the disgrace from the people. He took away the reproach of Egypt. He defended the reputation of God's people. So look at now verse 10. And while the Israelites camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month. The day after Passover, they ate unleavened bread and roasted grain from the produce of the land. Now here's a key verse 
And this is a verse that's stirring me, and I believe God's speaking words of wisdom to us through this scripture. Verse 12. And the day after they ate from the produce of the land, the manna ceased. Since there was no more manna for the Israelites, they ate from the crops of the land of Canaan that year. So let's think about this. During the time in the wilderness, manna came as long as God's people needed it. But the very day fruit was there, the manna stopped. Now, I want to ask you this question. What is your manna? What is that that God has provided for you, like a continual miracle in your life, and that continual miracle is covering up a deficiency that you haven't done your part in changing yet? Is your manna like an action that God continues to bring to cover up a chosen limitation? A manna is a mercy that is supposed to come to your life for a season, but isn't supposed to sustain you forever. It can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. What happens is this, is that when we're at a place of vulnerability, when we're at a place of danger, when we're at a place of unfamiliarity and God brings manna, he brings provision, he brings the miraculous. Uh, He brings stuff to our life that isn't necessarily deserved, but it's received. And it's a sign of his love and it's a sign of his mercy and it's a sign of his forgiveness and his provision and all the great things God has for us. But sometimes the thing that God has provided for us in the past Maybe what's limiting us to moving forward in the future. The end of manna is an indication that a new era has begun in your life. God didn't stop supplying for his people the day the manna stopped. God continued to supply his people in an an entire new way. No longer was it gathering bread from the ground, that's supernatural. That's unexpected. Um, It became expected, but it started unexpectedly. That's something that's unique. It was covering up a deficiency. Now the Lord says, there's fruit and there's crops, and you have to maintain those crops, and you have to protect those crops, and you have to work the land. I provided for you in a miraculous way. Now I'm going to provide for you in a in a systematic way. One way feels dramatic and exciting. The other way feels ordinary. But the Lord is in the ordinary. The Lord is in normal. The Lord is in the rhythm and the seasons. And the Lord is in the work. And then the Lord is in the pattern. The Lord keeps working. And some of us, he's calling us to Receive from him in a different way than we've been receiving from him in recent days. Now, some of you may be in a, an era of manna, okay? So maybe this sermon something you'll file away for the future. But others of you, I want you to see that the timing of the Lord is changing patterns in your life. It's changing the atmosphere in your life. 
It's changing the level of responsibility in your life. It's changing the perspective in your life. And it feels different. But in this case, different is good. I see this as incredible timing from God that the people entered Canaan or the promised land right in the fruitful season. They didn't enter in January and God said, hey, you're going to have to plant in March and then nine months later or six months later in August, there'll, there'll be some fruit. No, the fruit was there already. God's timing was perfect for them. He took them to a place and said, there's a change. There's a shift. There's a transition here. When the manna stops, there's something new. There's something better. There's something replenishable. There's something that is not just for the day. It's for generations after us. We're going to own the land. We're going to settle in the land. We're going to cultivate the land. We're going to make the land productive. The land is going to be productive, not just for our daily need, but for generational benefit. This is what God does. The way God provided for you in the past may be what is limiting God's work for you today. I'm going to say that again. That's a lot to think about. The way God provided for you in the past may be what is limiting God's work for you today. Now let's look at our psalm for today, Psalm 32. Starting with verse six, therefore let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. That's a good thing to do, right? When great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. Isn't that exciting? Doesn't that sound exciting? Like, I'm going to hide in the Lord. There's going to be songs of deliverance. Like, strike up the electric guitar. Let's go, right? We didn't have the electric guitar today. That's okay, because it was awesome worship today, even without the pizzazz. I, I like the stripped-down thing. I like the, just that kind of granola guitar thing. Let's just Peter, Paul, and Mary thing, right, or uh, Americana worship with some hymns thrown in there. I'm all about it. It's cool. It doesn't matter if it's jazzed up or if it's simple and granola. If, if it's the Lord, it's good stuff, right? So it was great worship today. And it'll be great worship, you know, in a couple of weeks in Easter, like when we have like all kinds of instruments and, and uh, lights and flashing things and all that comes. That's cool too. I can praise the God that way too. It, it, one, it, one is just as good as the other because it's the same God. It's the same lyrics. It's the same Lord. And, and he's great. But here it is. You, you feel the momentum of this song the teaching of it, like, hey, let's trust in the Lord. And, and we'll have joyful shouts of deliverance. Like, yeah, God's going to come through miraculously. Yay, God. But look at verse 8. I will instruct you and show you the way to go. With my eye on you, I will give you counsel. This idea of, yes, God is a delivering God, and a miraculous God, and an intervening God, and that same God says, but let me teach you how to live this thing out. Let me instruct you. Let me give you counsel. And when we hear the instruction of God, and we hear the counsel of the Lord, then we're responsible to obey his voice. Now here's a great verse, verse nine. Don't be like a horse or mule. How many of you would like to 
market that verse <laughs> with plaques, bumper stickers, scriptural pens. That's not the most marketable verse, is it? Don't be like a horse or mule, but we need to hear it because it says without understanding. That must be controlled with bit and brittle or else it will, come, will not come near you. Many pains come to the wicked, but the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. I love that, that yes in the psalmist's heart. Like, be glad, rejoice in the Lord. You know, um, shout for joy with all your heart. Do you know when we're able to do that is when we've obeyed the Lord. When we're, when we're obedient to the Lord, there is that yes in our heart. There is that yes in their heart that just makes us like reserved or just like we have this yes in our heart. It's like, I'm just not feeling it today. A lot of it is our level of obedience. But if we have this yes in our heart, it's like, I'm going for God. I want to hear his voice. I want to obey his voice. I want to respond to his voice. There's this yes in my heart. Now, I got to tell you, in the 9 a.m. service, I accidentally lied to the congregation. Because like I was in this part of the sermon and I'm like, there's a yes in your heart and you're going for God. And you're, you know, I was just going along that line. Like, like, you know, you know it's greater than, who cares about the basketball game today? <laughs> then I kept preaching. Well, I, I kind of care. I do. One thirty tip off. So I just needed to purge my soul there. But the truth is this. If we're really living right in comparison to the greatest of God, who cares about the game, right? That is true, and I do believe that. So today, I want to give you words of wisdom. That's what today is. The words of wisdom. At least I hope it's wisdom to you. It's been wisdom to me. And the concept is, I want you to move at some point, some of you, are ready to move now. Some of you will move in the future. Some of you have overlooked the movement from manna to fruit, from always depending upon the miraculous to joining God in his regular rhythmic work and allowing God to do his work. This is a message of encouragement and inspiration. This is not a message of regret. Because here's what's easy to do. Guys, when you have a captive audience like you are this morning, and I've got the microphone, and you have to listen to me for 30 minutes, I can really make you feel bad about your life. It's not that hard to preach that way. I know that because I, I had those same messages come into my life. I'm not good enough. I'm not disciplined enough. I don't have it all together. That's not what I'm trying to do. I, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm inviting you to look at this story and this concept as inspirational. Like, hey, wherever we are, let's move forward. We look in the rearview mirror to see the past, but we're laser focused on the future. Yeah, if you look behind you when you drive, you're going to wreck. And, and, and you're not going to go anywhere. There's no direction in your life. So we glance in the rearview mirror to see where we're at, but we're focused on the future. This message is future driven for you. Like, so let's just all put aside the insecurities like, oh, by now, I wish I would have done this or done that or I should have thought about this seven years ago. Let's just put that aside. It's already within us, right? Just stirring all of those regrets are within us. And instead, let's, let's go 
and let's look ahead to what God has for us. A concept that, that I realized that really helped me, and I've, I've told this to a lot of people. I don't think it's come through many sermons, but maybe I talked about this a few years ago, is how our society is organized right now in this, this uh, if you're involved in the education system at all, and, and from, from homeschooling all the way to public schooling, and most people are is that your life is segmented into certain years and periods of time. So elementary school, let's say it's four to five, five years long. And then you make this dramatic change into middle school. And everything changes in middle school. Expectations change and um, opportunity changes. And so that's three years, right? You with me? High school, another transformational change. High school is four years. Then... Adolescence, early adulthood, a lot of people go to college, and so that's designed to be four years. For most of us, it's six years, but there's that time period. Maybe you go to a trade school. Maybe you go ahead and get involved as an entrepreneur and save student loans and just go ahead and make money. That's a smart thing to do and just kind of bypass that whole college thing. Whatever it is, it's another period, early adolescence of four to five years of finding yourself, experimenting seeing what's going on. And then for most of us, we get into our 20s and we're changing jobs every three or four years. So I started realizing that in my life, about every three to four years, I started wanting to make a change. Because if you follow my life after college, as this church three years, this church three years, this church, you know, it just went on down the line. Uh, even, even after we planted a church 14 years ago, three years ago, three years into that plant, we merged churches. And so this is a pattern that I began to feel in, in my life that I was getting restless every few years. Now, God uses restlessness. He uses that type of uh, uh, desire for advancement for his good and for his glory. But for most of us, I know some of you have unique jobs where you're always going to be moving around and stuff like that. And I, I respect you and respect that for those type of professions. But for most of us, Somewhere along the line, it is a wise thing to settle in, not settle as far as growth, but settle in uh, and establish ourselves and put our roots down somewhere. That, that's a wise thing to do, whether it's in a career, whether you know, in a family, that's a wise thing to do. If God shows you a, a mate, you want to settle in with that person. That's a blessing. That's a covenant with the Lord. You want to settle in sometimes to a geographical area. For most of us, not all of us, that's a wise thing to do. So I'm going to state this concept of manna to fruit in three different ways. It's like saying the same thing three different ways. Here's the first one. The, the journey from restless to established. That's what our early adult life is. And, and if you're, you're young and you're, you're restless, that's not necessarily a bad thing. God can use that. I'm just saying that somewhere, all of our timelines are a little bit different. It would be wise to settle in. I mean, we, we've, we've got to pay off these houses someday, people. Right? We've got to someday sustain a career path long enough to be an expert at something. These are, these are things that, that in, in community life, the, the value it is to walk many years with a group of people. And I believe this is you will not be fruitful the way God wants you to be 
if you don't find some places to put down roots. I, I believe this is a, a clear biblical pattern, and, and, and we're not going to explore that exhaustively, but I think if you, if you see the pattern of God's people, there's a lot of truth to that. So I, I want to encourage you that wherever you find yourself, don't leave where you are quickly. Don't leave where you are rashly. Slow, deliberate, yet decisive moves need to occur. Now, I said decisive because you don't want to be a person who can never make a decision. That's not good either, right? Some people just, I'm scared, I'm scared to make a decision. This could happen, this could happen, this could happen, this could happen. And they, they, they spend their whole lives never making a decision. That's not positive. But th- this idea of slow, deliberate, yet decisive moves. Now, I, I have been blessed to, to lead this church now in my 11th year. And this church has treated me so well, it has never given me a reason to want to leave. And, and it's still the case. I mean, you guys just, just, you just, you guys are great. You guys are great. I don't want to steal Lou Gehrig's words, but I feel like the luckiest man in the world. And that sure is true. And it's not luck, it's blessed and it's favor from the Lord. So now that you know that, though, let, let me share with you some of my mindset, some of my psyche. This, this, this has a lot of different factors. Part of this is my personality and how God made me. But there, there have been several times through the years where I've had to literally teach myself and speak to myself. And I've told myself, Aaron, prove to yourself how consistent you can be. Prove to yourself how faithful you can be. Keep after it. Keep focused on that. Keep focused on the things that God, that God has called you to do. It, it's a way of, you know, some of the greatest sermons I preach, I preach to myself. Because I'm going to tell you this because I believe it's going to help you in the things God's called you to do. At times, being at one place for a long time can feel boring. Now that, all of a sudden, it's like the, we're going to lose air in the room. Like, oh, Boring? We wrongly believe being bored is like the worst, the, you know, the, the, the worst condition in the world. And I struggled with using the word bored because walking with the Lord is not boring at all. I'm not saying that. But I intentionally am choosing that word today because I want you to hear this. It's in boredom that I found myself. And it's in boredom that I found God. That might give you some things to think about, but we're, we're just like chasing adventure all the time. In, in my life, I'm, I'm satisfied with the amount of adventure I've had in life and the challenges and all that kind of stuff. But this, this idea of between the verses, I didn't share this first service, but let me talk to you about this. It's like we read the stories of these great men in the Bible and we, hear, we, we read the highlights. There are Decades of silence. Year and year and year after year, we don't know what's happened with the great men and women of the Bible. And it's in that, that what can be called boredom that we find relationship and we find depth and we, and we find connectivity and we find ourselves. Because sometimes when we're scared to be bored, 
then we don't have the, the space to think critically or, or to reflect appropriately about our life and who we are with God. So if you're restless today, God uses that restlessness to push us forward. God uses that restlessness sometimes for change, but often that restlessness leads us to a place where we can, we can find who we are, like more, more space for God, more reflection. And the Lord, Lord reminds you once again, I've established you here. I've established, I've established you with them. I've established you with that person. And, and it's in this place where I'm going to speak to you. A couple of years ago, a, a very, uh, very popular book came out called Hillbilly Elegy. It's um, by an author named J.D. Vance, who is from the Appalachia region of the United States. And so he wrote about that region. And that's a region of the country that I love because that's where my wife is from. And so um, what a blessing that area has been to our family. But it had, that area, that region of our country, which is all the way from really north Georgia all the way up to upstate New York has some problems and Vance speaks of this chaos that is part of some of the people's home in that culture just to be fair that is really common to people of all culture so even though I found this quote in this book it really applies all over the world to urban settings suburban settings rural settings and here's what he said we don't study as children And we don't make our kids study when we're parents. Our kids perform poorly in school. We might get angry with them, but we never give them the tools like peace and quiet at home to succeed. Again, this doesn't just apply to one region of the nation. This applies to cultures all over the world. The gift, he calls them tools, I'll call them a gift, peace and quiet at home to succeed. This leads me to a second description of going from manna to fruit. Chaos to consistent. Chaos to consistent. Proverbs teaches us that it is faithfulness, consistency, slowness that produces health, prosperity, and longevity. Can I just remind you of something? Chaos can start feeling familiar. Chaos can become addicting. But chaos produces chaotic people. And chaotic people are not still enough to hear the voice of God. So the very chaos that we're addicted to and that make us feel maybe powerful really mask our ability to hear the voice of God Baseball season started a few days ago, earlier than it used to be. And I may have told you this before, but I was terrible at baseball. I mean, I got nailed in the face with a baseball when I was a little kid. Blood went everywhere, bloody nose, and I was always scared of the ball ever since that day. I kept playing because I love sports, but the, the only compliment I ever got in baseball was, good eye, because I would just stand there and pray the pitcher would throw balls. I didn't want, want him to throw strikes. But I want you to watch the screens now and watch this closely because here is a reason why 
Baseball pitchers, even though they're paid a lot of money, I would never want to be a baseball pitcher. Watch closely. 3-2. Look out, a shot right back. Look at that. Maria, who ducked, got the glove up there. They think, show that again. Start that over again. Show that again. Watch this. This is coming 109 miles per hour. Look out, a shot right back. That's what they think. They think that that pitch came back at 109 miles per hour. Now watch him just react here for a second. And I want you to hear what the announcer says. Right back at Maria. Boy, that was scary. Judge with the line drive right back at the Rays right-hander. Boy, that was a matter of survival to get the glove up for that one. He said, the announcer said, that was a matter of survival. Uh, The Rays pitcher, Jake Faria, said this, I threw my hands up to get my head out of the way, and the ball went into my glove. He went on to say, I, I've never seen anything that hard coming to my face before. So the, the pitch probably went in at 88 miles an hour, came back at 109 miles per hour is the estimate. And he just, you know, reflex, just defended himself. I've always thought of that whenever I see that through the baseball season. I think about that is a way a lot of us live. We're not making intentional choices. We're just reacting to what comes our way. So we have relational problems and we're just responding to an event. Are we responding to a conversation that's chaotic? And it's just like a reflex and we don't really get on the solution side of it. Financially, we don't know where our money is going. And so we're reacting to unexpected bills and notices. Emotionally, we are unknowingly driven by kind of emotional triggers that because our life is chaotic, we don't really examine, like, why is it that that made me so mad? Right? I mean, why is it that what happened at that store or being cut off in traffic just sent me into a rage? And there's reasons for that. Why did I act so impulsively? Why did I overeat? Why did I drink too much? These are questions that when our life is chaotic, we don't really take the time to think about because maybe the answer's too scary. Maybe, maybe that the chaotic pace is something that, that we're just used to. This leads me to the third descriptor here. And it's this, from crisis faith to planned fruitfulness. Man and me from the ground, because if God doesn't come through, there's no way we're going to survive. And there's something special and beautiful about that and miraculous about that. And here's the thing. God keeps giving the manna, even when we're tired of it. Isn't that interesting that the very thing the people of God were amazed with became the very thing that they despised and got tired of? And yet, out of mercy, God kept giving the manna. But I want to give you a vision today of planned fruitfulness. Planning ahead with God's help to have spiritual fruit that he wants. I learned this concept a few years ago, and it's, even though it hasn't always worked out perfectly, 
it has benefited my life. I want you to imagine a time in the future. And to help us, I'm going to pick a time for you. How about the year 2025? Six years from now. It's not five years. It's not 10 years. Six years from now. And take some time. Like, drive somewhere or go to your backyard or lock yourself in the bathroom if you have to. And think about 2025. Maybe you could ask yourself questions like this. Who does God want me to be in 2025? Where does God want me to be in my relationships? Where does God want me to be in my debt and savings in 2025? Where does God want me to be living in 2025? Does he he want you to be in the same home? Does he want you to have your first home? Does he want you to live in Middle Tennessee or does he want you to move to Arizona? I'm gonna get back to that in a second. Here's a more important question and it's all tied in together. Where does God want your heart to be in 2025? Like, like, the essence of who you are, your character. Like, where is your heart going to be in six years? Here's a question we don't ask enough of. What kind of people does God want your children to be in 2025? What kind of people? You see, the decisions we make today contribute greatly to who they are tomorrow. These are important questions. I think of a positive example of one of the very few examples that I know of people who do this stuff. You enjoyed the worship today from Pastor Aubrey and his wife, Jennifer McGowan. The two of them grew up here in Hendersonville, but for 10 years they were on staff at a very influential church in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And that church loved them and they loved that church. But God called them to move back to Hendersonville. And I talked to Aubrey about this by text yesterday to get his permission to share this. I said, how long before you knew and before you moved? And he said it was at least a three-year process. I actually thought it was longer than that from just my perception. But the church in Dallas, they loved the McGowans and the McGowans loved that church. They left that church stronger And they prepared themselves so that they could move here. And they made sacrificial decisions so they could follow God's directives. So it wasn't a rash kind of dependency in a negative way of this. Or almost like sometimes we make God provide for us. Like, I'm going to move to Milwaukee next month because I love Laverne and Shirley. It was such a great show. And... uh, I haven't thought of that show in 30 years. And, and, you know, it's just Milwaukee's awesome. I'm going to move there next month, put in my two-week notice, move there, and all of a sudden you're like, God, you have to provide a job. You have to provide housing. You have to provide friends for my kids so they're happy because you're God and I'm obeying you. And, like, we make God give us manna. And he, he does because he's good and gracious. And he's in covenant with us to provide for us. But wouldn't it be great if we plan for fruitfulness? And we said, under your leadership, Lord, let me live in the future. And that future place that you've called me to, let me make decisions today to get there. And, and I just want 
I want all of you to believe that the Lord can partner with you to do this. I talked about this concept a couple of years ago with a friend of mine who was not at a preferred place in life. So I told him, I said, okay, let's look 10 years ahead. Where do you want to be in 10 years? And I'm, I'm coaching him just like I'm doing to you here. And he said, Aaron, here's the problem with that. I did that 10 years ago and I'm not anywhere near that place that we, we, we had planned. So I said, well, that's one way to look at it. I mean, you can look at it as, uh, you know, as, as if I failed and I didn't get there and I'm not going to do it again. Or I said, you can reframe that and say, look at what I learned in 10 years. Let me make the next 10 years better because of that. Guys, you can spend, I, I gave you six years, 10 years. It may, it may need to be three months from now. It may need to be two weeks from now. Whatever, whatever the case is, plan to be fruitful for the Lord. Now, this is sound, this has felt a lot like a self-help seminar in some ways. We got to watch that in the church because God didn't call me uh, to be a motivational speaker from this platform. He called me to talk about the cross and talk about the resurrection. So let me give you the gospel application to this. It's beautiful. We live in this wilderness known as the world. Heaven's going to touch this world someday, but that's our promised land. We're in this wilderness, and God provides for us manna. The manna is his scripture. The manna is his church. The manna is the table of the Lord, the ordinances. The manna is water baptism. The manna is anointed worship. And it is the grace we need for today. But someday we're going to enter in to that realm of heaven where there's going to be the fruit of Jesus and there'll be perpetual fruitfulness in him. And this is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16 says this, from now on then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective, even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. Let's stand.